Welcome to PS Exhibitions Podcast. I am your co-host, Erica. And I'm your co-host, Virginia. Today we're joined by Lucas Milanic to discuss his work as a glassblower and small business owner. Hi, Lucas. Hey there. Uh, my name is Lucas, and thanks for having me on your show today. Thank you. So for our listeners, what is your background as a glassblower? So I've been blowing glass for about five years, and uh, I started in college. I picked it up. It was this beautiful, exotic, transformative material that has a really long history in science and alchemy. And uh, after working with it for just you know a couple short months in one class, I knew I wanted to keep working with it for a long time. After graduating from college, I worked for four months on the Corning Museum of Glasses Glass Barge Project, which went to local communities throughout the Hudson River area and the Erie Canal, and we blew glass on a barge. After that adventure, I landed in Beacon, worked in a glass factory for three years and started to build my own practice, and I've recently just moved to New York City. I live in Brooklyn now, and I'm moving into my new studio space next week. That's so exciting. So for our particular exhibition, the process show, we showed a couple different things of your work. But can you talk a little bit about the difference between Colors of Life and the experiment Mars, please? Sure. I think both of them are really experimentative. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, Colors to Life is a about a three minute long video of a block of glass decaying underwater. The cast glass is super hot, so when it's submerged in the water, it starts to crackle. And the camera is viewing the glass through a polariscope, which um, kind of creates a rainbow effect in the glass as it's stressed out. Um, Mars, or the Mobile Alchemy Research Station, is a self-contained glass-blowing apparatus that I created from found objects during my time in Philadelphia. So that's more of a performative piece for me, and um, I like to think about that one as almost a, um, a teaching tool. I can teach a lot about the glass-blowing process with that machine. The way it works is we start by preheating the glass with a blowtorch and then microwaving it to its melting point. Cold glass won't transmit microwaves, but hot glass will. So I can start talking about the chemistry of that, the physics of how we get color into glass, and how we work with it. And uh, people can also see it in its molten state. Well, cool. So particularly with the Mars project, do you follow a specific plan or do you let things just happen? Like how, how do you intersect science and art through glass blowing? Right. I think the mobile alchemy research station is really, it's kind of a constantly developing project because it has been, when I first made it, it was the, the object itself was the artwork. And then I worked with a videographer uh, named Luke Hall, and we kind of created this like video tutorial uh, for somebody who might be trying to use it so that they could understand how it actually worked. And then that became a separate artwork. 
Um, and then for my one of my last shows, Allegory and Apparatus in Beacon, New York, we were making objects with it. So it's kind of really interesting to me how something can be a tool, a performance, and a teaching device uh, all at once. And you know, I, I think that project was really cool and really important to me because it kind of breaks down the barriers of, of you know, what an art object can be or what it has to be in a normal gallery setting. And I'm wondering if you could talk about a little bit more about um, alchemy, how that played into that project or what that means to you. Right. So, you know, the Mobile Alchemy Research Station is really a work of alchemy uh, in itself, in its creation. Um, alchemy is kind of a precursor to chemistry, yeah, starting in about the 16th century and going on until really about the 18th or 19th century. Um, and during this time, people were just experimenting really rapidly. We developed our understanding of, um, a really crude understanding of atoms and how different substances would interact and how to make predictions on those. But there's also a spiritual side to it. Um, and that spiritual side was really what, what kept people working on finding these formulas. The mobile, oh, the mobile alchemy research station uh, embodies a different idea within alchemy, kind of a subdivision of alchemy, um, regarding the creation of a philosopher's stone, or the ability to transform one form of matter into another. And in this case, we're taking clear glass and we're adding color to it by adding in different chemicals to, to color the glass. And that's one form of alchemy. The traditional form of alchemy might be taking lead and trying to turn it into gold. Um, but another kind of hidden uh, form of alchemy that's in the work is the actual transformation of all these found materials into a mobile glass blowing studio. Um, typically, a glass blowing studio costs, up, you know, it costs like $100,000 or more. It's a very expensive process to have all of the equipment that you need to keep glass molten 24 hours a day and seven days a week. So this is kind of interesting because it allows you to melt glass on demand anywhere you can get enough power to power a microwave. You just plug it into the wall and you're good to go. So how do you think the alchemy aspect has informed your own visual language when it comes to glass. Hmm. A good question. And like how expressive can or how expressive does alchemy allow you to be? Like where how how does how do the two meet together? Right. Well, glass is chemically inert, which has made it a very useful material in exploring chemistry and science. When we think of science, we often think about test tubes and beakers. Um, so there's a lot of history there. And I look at these scientific experiments for inspiration a lot of the time. So naturally, some of that language of, you know, testing apparatuses uh, translates into my work. Um, 
for a while I was I was actually looking at old 18th and 19th century paintings and looking in the background of these paintings for glassware because all the glassware was handmade in the same process that I use. So, you know, using that, right. you're kind of getting a painter's interpretation of a, uh, of, of a scientific object. And then I'm using my skill as a craftsperson to, to recreate it. I've learned a little bit about the function of, of these forms. Um, and also, it's been interesting figuring out how to remake them because we don't make glassware in the same way that we used to. A lot of scientific glassware is now flameworked, uh, which is just using a small torch to link small pieces of glass together. Um, but the kind of glass that I do at the furnace requires me to sit at the bench, and I start with just a big ball of molten material and shape it into something completely different. Um, so relearning those techniques has helped me push my skill a little bit. And um, I, through doing that and creating them, I'm finding symbolic meaning in the form and their function. So thinking about, um, you know, what, what a specific beaker might be used for, or thinking about distillation, the process of evaporating a gas out of a liquid and letting it condense down a tube. Um, you know, I start thinking about if we can use that form to uh, condense ideas or distill ideas or distill um, you know, different forms of matter conceptually versus the physical transformation that, that happens through chemistry and alchemy. I like this idea of distilling ideas. Um, can you speak a little bit more about that and how, I guess, how does craft intersect in that? I think a lot about the way that our, our our brains work and our bodies work as just a system. And you can think about a science experiment as a system as well. In a way, we're all kind of these living, uh, we're these living vessels of, of rules, self-made rules and rules from outside. And, um, you know, we're just a system that ideas are kind of flowing through. And I feel that my job as the maker is maybe to take those, those ideas that come to me in passing and somehow make them concrete, make them um, into physical objects or manifestations of myself. What are some influences in your work or makers that particularly interest you? In addition to alchemy and chemistry, I'm also thinking about nature and the small little details that amaze me every day. Um, you know, lately it's been lightning bugs. They still kind of get me excited and the sound of cicadas outside. But I'm also interested in DIY culture and kind of um, like countercultural movements or like clandestine um, groups of people like you know, Scientology and uh, how, how these self-made or maybe not self-made, but how these small insular 
groups of people build their own belief system that kind of transforms reality. Um, so looking at these groups, um, I kind of am able to think of myself as sort of, you know, a, as somebody who's, who's making their own reality. I sometimes think about myself as like a gorilla botanist or a backyard scientist and sometimes a post-apocalyptic science historian. Now, I think going off of that, um, some of the, the ways that you photograph um, your work out in nature, I'm thinking of the pictures of these vessels that you made that are sitting on rocks by, um, looks like a riverbank, like how you curate your own work within that mindset. I guess I, I kind of want to move away from thinking about art in like solely in the gallery. Um, so when I document my work, I try to, uh, you know, recontextualize it out in the world. And, you know, maybe it's the same, the same part of me that happened with the mobile alchemy research station, where I was taking that project that I had built in the gallery. And I realized if I have a 50 foot extension cord, I can do it on the sidewalk. Um, so then that becomes like a new work when you put something out there. And even for like my product or my vessels that I make for um, my, my small business, I think about, um, you know, that's a wonderful item to put in your home. But when you, take, when you take a glass vessel with little tiny feet on it and you put it on a rock in an environment, it really becomes alive in a way. It starts to, you know, play off elements of the landscape and kind of becomes something else different. Um, that piece, for instance, I always think about as like a crab sitting on a rock, even though it's really more of a yellow cube with stubby little feet on it. Um, just the way that it's sitting on a rock while the waves are lapping over it makes me think about like being at the beach. Um, and another work that I photographed outside is the uh, the Driftwood Wind series, which respond to bioelectric signals in plants to create music. So you put two probes in the plant, and it starts to make music after a little bit of tuning that you do. You kind of have to tune into the frequencies and everything. And I guess that piece, you know, that piece was kind of built for outdoors you know, built to be outside the gallery because that's where we find plants so much. Um, but I think there's something really there, and especially during a time in, in quarantine where galleries weren't open, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's a movement to, you know, break down the four walls, break down the, break down the white box. I think that's something that's been happening a lot through art history, but we're really, you know, kind of seeing more of maybe a demand for it, or we're, we're just seeing it normalized, I guess. It's not shocking to see art out in the real world anymore. It's, um, it's, it can still be really exciting, but, um, you know, I think it's, I think bringing art outside of the studio, bringing art outside of the home, or it's typical display mechanism 
can make for a really interesting uh, recontextualization or uh, a, a new read on a piece. Yeah, no, I I really like that. And I think Virginia and I can relate to that a lot and, and PS exhibitions can relate to that a lot because in my mind, PS exhibitions doesn't have any walls, right? We only exist. Yeah, you're all digital. <laughs> yeah, all digital. We have no walls. It's literally in your pocket and it, it's being aided by by technology and, and the idea of the machine that's going to, you know, tear down um, boundaries and, and unite people digitally. Um, right. And I think I think your work definitely does that on on its own without without the help of PS exhibitions. So can you talk a little bit about how the idea of of this machine relates to craft and and particularly your work, I think, flirts with the idea of minimalism, especially when you place it within nature. I think there's a really beautiful contrast. So I guess, how do they all coexist? So I was talking a little bit about, um, you know, how I kind of think of the human body or natural organisms as a machine um, or like a, a set of circumstances. And then out of those circumstances comes, you know, art, comes music and all of the wonderful things that humans have done and the not so wonderful things. Um, so sometimes when I'm making work, I like to think about setting up situations like that um, and then just letting, letting what will come out of it come out of it. Um, yeah, I was working on a series early in my art career of painting machines. Uh, it was right when I got to art school, I was making these machines. And the joke was that I was a sculptor and I didn't know how to paint. So... I made these machines that would make really interesting marks. Um, and then that idea kind of, you know, ideas ebb and they flow. But as I continue on in my career, I noticed that um, the idea of like setting up a, a circumstance, a, a set of circumstances, and then letting the work come out of that is interesting and it's it's in a way almost removing myself from from the work um and finding a way to do that isn't always easy especially as a glass maker because it's um it is such a handmade process in the same way that a ceramicist you know is almost leaving literal fingerprints on their work um, every time I touch the glass with a tool, there's some mark of myself in it. But um, trying to make machines that seem to like function without me somehow, or um, setting up these experiments and then documenting what happens next, that seems to be a common thread going through my work. It's an interesting idea because still initially you the human are the one that's creating said machine so i guess the final product is always going to have part of you in it even though it might not physically look that way that's absolutely right i'm definitely not trying to make 
a factory made object right when right I, when I blow glass i'm trying to make something that um that shows evidence of the process that 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 made it right it's like how do you humanize commercialization and mass production you know i think that's something that you're that, kind of asking him and i think that kind of fits in with some of like my design aesthetic um when i design home decor or you know cups bowls glasses things like that um i try and think of the glasses having posture of as having character and almost trying to like anthropomorphize almost trying to anthropomorphize the um the 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 glassware itself or really whatever i make i think it should kind of have its own character and attitude i think that's what makes good design fun to look at yeah i think so i i really love your vessels with their little feet like some of them look quite sassy i have to admit sassy yeah they're like toes (laughs) curl up a little bit yeah (laughs) like they're a little sassy some of them yeah yeah. man we should make a hot pink one shouldn't we oh definitely that has to be like the sassiest of sassy yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) i like that so you're also a business owner in addition to being a glassblower um could you talk a little bit about that aspect of your your process and your production sure i guess i'd I'd start off with just saying that um hats off to any artist out there who's making work and selling it because you are a small business owner you are the marketing department you are the advertising you are the salesperson packing shipping ordering new materials all of that if you're making anything and selling it, you are a business owner. And that's pretty amazing, um, just to begin with. And um, it's been a long road. It still is. Um, I had kind of built up a little bit of a customer base in Beacon and moving to Brooklyn. I've been you know, just waiting to settle in a little bit more before I get everything uh, going again. But it's really wonderful to me to make objects that I know are going to live long lives in somebody's home. And in the age of being able to go to Ikea and get a set of cups for $20, you know, it is really nice to be able to, to make work that people want to invest in. And, you know, I'm always thankful when someone buys something from me because it means that they want a little piece of me and my brand and my my character in their home with them. Your sassy vessels. Yeah, they want a little bit of my sass in their <laughs> home. Don't give me none of that sass. So how as one aspect of being a small business owner, how um how do you position social media with your work? Basically, if I could stop doing social media today and never have to look at Instagram or get stuck in that hole again and just be the perfect productive person that I know lives deep down inside of me, I would do that. However, Instagram is an algorithmically designed 
uh, process that is, you know, it's really addictive. Instagram can be a really good marketing tool for artists, but I think it kind of misses the point. I think people don't spend long enough looking at your work and it feels impersonal. Yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about like reels, they only exist in formats of yeah. 15 seconds, 30 seconds, and a minute. Well, that's like literally no time at all. I just think about like, you know, our glass community is really small and I often know people, I often know people by their Instagram names and not like their actual name. That's really interesting. I feel like as a critic, as a historian, I don't want artwork to be stereotyped, I guess, and reduced to such a very simple idea and i feel like the visual yeah, arts and design can really fall into that trap and particularly glass blowing simply because it is like a mesmerizing experience i think um yeah. as opposed to as opposed to other mediums in some ways so i don't want you know people to solely be attracted by it because it looks pretty like there's more behind it Certainly. Yeah, there's a whole history of craft and everything. And I also, I'll follow that up with, I think it'll be kind of a, a sad, shallow turn of events if someday we are teaching um, TikTok as part of a, an art history curriculum. Yeah, definitely. That's not a future I'm very interested in for, yeah. for art. I mean, TikTok, do what you want, but I think I think art should have a place outside of that. Yeah, especially with, well, any kind of art, but especially with glass, the materiality is lost in this digital format in some way, too. Yeah. 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 I think, it, I think it, it speeds it up and makes it look a lot easier than it is. It is a very physically demanding medium. Yeah. Like, between the heat, just the heat, like, not even, like, touching anything at this point, but just the heat and, like, heavy materials, like, you don't, you have no sense of that in a 30-second reel. Yeah, there are times, it, it's it's really difficult and really expensive to be in the glass studio in the first place, and, um, you know, the, your time in there is really valuable, and so is your sanity, and it's always kind of, like, juggling the two you know how much heat can you take um I, i've been in the glass studio on really hot days but yesterday was a pretty hot one um it was 113 degrees in the studio uh about 15 feet back from the furnace and usually you're standing right next to it so it's probably around 120 degrees maybe more but i think what's fun about this is it for me the fun in glass blowing has always been the challenge of it, um, and the way that you're you're not competing against another person. There's no winner or loser per se, but um, you're always in kind of a competition with the material, and you're trying to coax it into being the shape that you want, or being the right dimension or the right color. You're always kind of you're working with it, but you're also kind of working against it sometimes. So. It's uh, 
it's a fun balancing act, and it always keeps things fresh. With that said about social media, though, do you think that there has been a growing interest in not just glass blowing, but but in the idea of craft because of social media? Um, it's not just social media. Uh, there was also a Netflix reality TV show that came out recently called Blown Away, which sparked a lot of interest in glass blowing as a trade. And, um, you know, I, I think that all the publicity that comes from social media is good. It's important to keep glass in front of people. It's a 2000 year old process. Um, and for a long time, it was kind of shrouded in mystery. The Italians kept their um, kept their famous glass blowers on an island, Murano, and they kept their secrets there with them. So, you know, nowadays in social media, it's really cool to have that exchange, right, where we can just you know comment on someone's post and be like, "How'd you do that?" And then maybe they tell you. Um, that exchange right. is really pushing everything forward. But that yeah. being said, it's also a big drain on my creativity, um, to be honest, because the time that I want to spend making things, I feel like I have to spend time or spend that time making content that people consume. I mean, like just the rate at which we churn through uh, material on social media, the infinite scroll. Um, you're spending two seconds looking at each thing that was thoughtfully produced and written about. So my solution to that is to try and find more personal ways of getting my work in front of people. Um, starting an email list and maybe writing postcards or, um, you know, for the people who have already made an investment in my career or um, the people that, you know, I'm interested in staying in touch with, um, trying to find alternatives outside of social media. Um, and that way, maybe we can have a little bit of both. Yeah, but let's be real here. What, what's your honest opinion about Blown Away? Like, as, as a glass blower, does it just make your eyes roll? Um... I gotta, I gotta, I, I need to hand it over to them. Um, I think they've done, they've done about the best you can making 20 minute clips of glass blowing for people who've never seen glass blowing before. Um, my hope is that as progressive seasons go by, it'll become less, um, bare basics of glass blowing and they'll be able to highlight what the people are doing a little bit more um but i'll also say that i think the prompts they're giving the artists though they're simple they allow for a lot of experimentation and i think that's really cool uh, there have been several episodes where i feel like i walked away from the episode thinking like i learned something um and i think that's really cool for a reality tv show I can't think of many others that are, you know, somewhat educational, mesmerizing, and, uh, and allow artists to continue making work. Yeah. What is your creative community like? The Glass Studio is always the hub of the Glass community. 
Um, but that being said, I, you know, I'm a multidisciplinary artist, so I have friends who paint, and um, I have other sculptor friends, and a lot of friends who just, you know, keep making things. Some of my, one of my best friends is a, a violin maker, and um, watching him do that kind of inspires me. But as an artist, it's really important to keep that community close because I really believe that if you surround yourself with people who are always doing the next thing, um, then you too will become the kind of person who is always on the move. And uh, together, you'll keep each other's forward momentum going. And uh, it can be really hard to get that back once you've lost it. So, you know, the right people, keeping those right people around so that you don't lose it in the first place is um, always really important. So what is the next thing for you as other ideas for projects or experimentations and any type of media? Right now, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot right now. Like, I just moved to Brooklyn and I just signed a lease for a new studio space. And um, I feel like I need to settle into the studio space before I can really start uh, being creative again. Yeah, that and makes sense. Maybe there's still creativity going on, but it's just kind of behind the scenes. I'm thinking about new ideas, applying to things, and um, you know, even the way that you set up your space is pretty creative too. I mean, I'm gonna have to build. I'm gonna get to build a new workbench new shelves. I really enjoy setting up studios, actually. It's like one of my favorite things, because you're like building your home in a way. It's kind of like the same like nesting vibe that people have at their, their home. You kind of can do that in your studio, too, and think about how you're going to optimize all your storage and, you know, maximize your tool accessibility and things like that. I think that's like really exciting. So that's kind of what I'm doing next is um is kind of some administrative stuff and then building out my next studio and hopefully I can stay here for a long time. I think I'll be in New York City for a while. That's so exciting. Yeah. Thank you. So Lucas, where can people find you online? Sure, yeah. You can <laughs> find me and my work at www lucaslabs.com uh, and that's lucas with a k l-u-k-a-s-l-a-b-s um yeah what about your social media pages yeah i post just about everything that gets posted my website goes on social media as well um and my social media page for instagram is at lucaslabs and okay. you can also reach out by email at lucasmelanic at gmail.com. Drop me a line. All right. Will do. And you also accept postcards, apparently, too. <laughs> yeah. Address <laughs> forthcoming. Yay. <Okay>. <laughs> I <laughs> love how postcards must be like the new thing for artists because like shout out to Shout out to yeah. our beloved Brett, but he sent Virginia and I postcards and we were like, oh, we love you even more. So. 
was better than getting bills or junk mail. It made yeah, my day yeah. through the it mailbox. Was a gorgeous right. little postcard. Um, <laughs> I think we gotta we gotta bring back the postcard. Um, yeah, you gotta I, team I, up with Brett. Yeah, bring them back. <laughs> They're hard to find in some places. It's it's a little upsetting. Like the the age of the postcard has almost gone away, but we'll get it back. I'm not too worried about it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining us this evening. This has been great. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Um, I hope it was in, as informative for you as it was for me. Definitely. Definitely, yeah. All right. So you can check Lucas's work out on our Instagram page at P period S period X. And until next time, bye. <laughs>